With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. I am so happy to be having movie actor and philanthropist Kellen Luntz on my podcast today. It's really important to know that Kellen is the brand ambassador and face of the Jeffrey Bean brand and is in New York City to kick off the Jeffrey Bean Foundation's new philanthropic campaign, Frame This Revelations, and to visit the labs at the Jeffrey Bean Cancer Research Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering. The campaign was created to raise awareness for new cancer research and to make people aware of how important it is to show empathy to cancer patients. I have to say this was a fantastic interview. I learned so much and we really went down some avenues I didn't think we would hit, but it was fascinating. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So with the Twilight series, like you said, you were getting to another level in the sense that this was an epic. You were in five movies playing this character Mm -hmm. and you kind of had to take this supernatural role uh, in this made-up fantasy world. And that also must have had a challenge in terms of like, okay, well, what what are the rules of a fantasy world? That's what I love sci-fi. With sci-fi, you have this freedom to create whatever world whatever rules you want there's nothing telling you what you can and cannot do because it's sci-fi right twilight was an interesting one we're playing these vampires that are trying to act human yet don't breathe don't need to eat so trying to portray human qualities is interesting it was really interesting you know and it sounds like now now you're you're done with that series. You're starting to break into these dramatic roles. Sounds mm-hmm. like that's a lot more pleasurable to you. Yeah. Kind of a lot more challenging because you're able to take these things that you wanted to learn and start applying them. I want to ask, you're obviously involved in a lot of charities. Yeah. You've been involved for a while in charities against sex trafficking. I don't know if it was just started, but I know you've been working on a campaign with Jeffrey Bean supporting cancer research yeah. and so on. How did you get involved in these different charities? Things like children and animals always they just get my heart beating and when my good friend ken biddle created the saving innocence which dealt with children being trafficked for sex out in la that's where i'm living now and so you know it's funny i want to ask you about this on a day-to-day basis you hear the word sex trafficking you never see it like how big is this and i'm being totally naive i'm asking the most most people are i was as well until I got educated. And when you're educated and you see it firsthand what it looks like, then you have an understanding and we have to give them hope 
And that's why even working with the Jeffrey Bean Foundation, which donates 100% of the net proceeds to cancer research, new cancer research over at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they were looking for someone who had a voice and a platform because they don't spend any money on advertisement to be an ambassador. I'm like, sign me up. So I educated myself with them. They do amazing things. So proud to be a part of it. And it's just spreading the awareness and giving people hope. That's what made yeah. me feel people are walking around aimlessly. Yeah. Well, like you said, with dreams, there's not a lot of vision for the dreams. Right. You know, like people move to LA to follow their dreams, but where is your planning right. to like accomplish that vision in your life? Because dreams without action is meaningless. I, I think it, that's true. It's kind of, that's where you aimlessly walk around. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that on yeah. the podcast. And, and, New York's great because it forces you to take action. Like if you take yeah. if you don't if you don't take action here, New York will kick you out. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, the entry the entry card is action. So I like that. Yeah. It's uh it's 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 both hard and exhilarating and very fulfilling when it works. So Good I mean I've I've started and sold lots of different businesses, books, everything here in 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 New York and finally it starts to feel good after uh, you take a lot of action. What's the favorite thing that you've done? Uh, well, I do. I enjoy doing this podcast. How and long has I this just, been now? Hmm? How long has this been, the podcast? About three years. Nice, man. Yeah. That's awesome. And then I just bought uh, part of a comedy club, and I do stand-up. So that, after all these businesses, ups and downs, 18 books written, bestsellers, whatever, I just love doing stand-up comedy. So that's that's, that's what fun. I love. When's and, your next one? Uh, tomorrow night and Saturday. Ah, oh, dang. I'll leave tomorrow for London. Next okay. time you're in town. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you want me to do what? Okay. It's okay if I talk about your engagement. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it's funny because, like, as a, I've kept a lot of it private. We actually got engaged almost a year ago, right? But someone just found out, or someone overheard something, and. So it's interesting because I don't look at the tabloids. But as far as like how we got engaged, that's private until we feel called to. Like we just try and hold on to as well, much intimacy as possible. What I want to talk about actually, yeah. and we'll, we'll get to it. I, yeah. I want to talk about your relationship to God actually. Awesome. Something I've never talked about on this podcast with anyone before. Amazing. That'd but I great. think that's really interesting with you somehow and I want to get to it. Sure. So... All right, so I probably I'm I'm sorry to say this, Kellen, but probably you're the ugliest person I've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, I will take that. I Thank know you. you were in five Twilight movies. I hate to outshine you with my own stunning looks, but you were in five Twilight movies, grossing billion plus revenues, yeah. and uh, you uh, you know you've been in tons of movies, tons of shows. You've been in many of my uh, favorite shows, which we we could talk about. I don't know what else to. You've been in so done so many things. Young guy, thirty two. Uh, you're also involved in a lot of charities. You're involved in charities involving um, stopping sex trafficking, developing more cancer research. You recently started a campaign with with Jeffrey Bean about cancer research. Uh, so I want to talk about all these things. Maybe we can start with the beginning. Like, you know, you're from North Dakota. Had you? 
How'd you become anything? <laughs> I always, I, how come there's a North Dakota and a South Dakota, by the way? Did they have like a, <laughs> did Dakota have a civil war? Like what happened? Yeah, well, I mean, West Virginia and Virginia, you know, there's North and South Carolina. I don't know about being up there. The states are quite different. South Dakota is beautiful. North Dakota has its charm. But I really don't know the reason why there's a North and South Dakota. But for me in the beginning, you know, my parents married there. They met there, married there, had my older brother and I there. And then they went through some hardships. You know, my parents separated and they got a divorce. And my mother. How old were you? By the way, I'm sorry if I interrupt a little. No, please do. And I I believe I was around four, four ish. So I don't remember. And I always question why, because I act now, you know, so I'll probably jump back and forth as well from beginning to the end and think a lot and pause. But as an actor, I was always envious of the ones who remembered the first day that they walked or a memory or, or their whole like from zero to five because they have a lot to pull from. And you, you, but, but, you know, maybe, you know, as someone who's divorced and had to say to my kids, okay, your mom and I are now divorced. It's very upsetting to the children. My kids cried. Is. You, you got divorced. Yeah. How old were your children then? Um, well, my youngest was, was six or no, no, she was, she was eight when we told her and she cried because a, she didn't understand what it meant. Yeah. It meant that I probably wouldn't be around as much, but mm. also it meant that she was going to be in a category of kids that she thought maybe something was wrong with them. She didn't wow. understand that it was a more common thing than, than now she's okay with it, but she didn't want to be the weird kid. And I don't know, she just started crying and maybe you don't want to, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's things from your past where you remember it, even in your subconscious, your parents arguing and having that emotional spasms that happened before a separation. But, you know, maybe it's thankful that you don't remember that. I know it is because, and I'll get to, you know, my faith and what I actually asked God why I don't remember that. But my brother, because I was four, he's three and a half years older. So he's around seven. So he was around the age of my youngest. He's, he was around the age of questioning, like, did I do something wrong? Were us boys the reason? Was there something he could have done different? He carried a lot of anger growing up. And I am forever grateful that my heart, I saw it as, a, I question it. Why did my heart, why don't I remember that stuff? And I remember asking God, I'm a man of faith. About a year ago, you know, I was, I was like, why? Why did I, why don't I remember that? And God told me, you know, he's like, Kellen, you didn't miss anything. There was nothing amazing that you missed. Why I kind of shut that part down, I protected your heart because now it's one of the most amazing things for a man to possess a childlike heart. And that's what I have and that's what I feel like I have. And that's one of the things that makes me who I am is that I'm still able to have a childlike heart. And I think, you know, that period before separation and divorce is really hard on the kids because all they do is hear the parents yelling and arguing with each other. And what happens after the divorce, which you and your brother 
maybe experience, maybe not, we can go into it, is, um, you know, suddenly I found I was able to spend a lot more quality time with my kids because it was one-on-one with them instead of as a couple. Instead of being an arguing couple dealing with our kids, each of us were able to spend as much loving time as possible with our children. And I think that, I'm not saying one thing is better for the kids than the other, but I know for me, I was a much better father after the divorce. So, uh, so maybe the fact that you were able to skip to that was in some ways a very healthy thing for you. And, you know, like you say, your, your, your brother experienced a lot more anger because he went through both sides of it. And, you know, I don't know what, you know, you know, and then eventually, of course, well, well, did you did your parents stay? Well, we're gonna they get both to the to- remarried. They both remarried. Yeah, so you're and suddenly new siblings, had four parents, <laughs> four parents, stepbrothers, half siblings. Let me ask you a question because you you hit on a point. You felt like you had more time with your children as as an individual because during the period during the 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 separating, there was a lot of you know um, arguments possibly. Um, do you remember? Say, and I just wonder if 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 work comes because for men we're driven by providing and working a lot to provide for the family. Do you think if that arguments like having arguments with your ex wife, if that didn't exist, would you still did you still see yourself having that same amount of time, or were you after the divorce more intentional with your time because you realized after the divorce I was much more intentional with yeah. my time. And you know it's funny in the context of this interview. Obviously, I want to get to the Twilight movies and your career yeah, as an actor sure. and so on. But this is a really interesting topic. Um, uh, uh, my biggest fear in getting divorced with the mother of my children was those nights when uh, my child would wake up with a nightmare and not be able to get back to sleep until I could comfort her. And I was afraid I was going to miss those nights. That was the one most important thing going on in my head is that I would, wouldn't be able to comfort her during her her nightmares. And to some extent, that was true. But yeah. then you figure out how your your own personal way to replace that and and to be there and to be present for your for your children so that they don't, you know, hopefully that they don't suffer the way you have and 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 you be the best parent you can and, and turn them into good adults. And now. Now they're 18 and 15. The oldest one is is a young, I would say a young adult, but she would probably say she's an adult. And uh, she's turning into a good person. So I feel like not just me, but of course uh, her mother did a very good job raising her. And that's the important mm-hmm. thing. You want them to be kind people yes. at, at, at when, they're, when they're older. That's the, most, that's, that's the job of a parent. There's no other job. Because she doesn't listen to me on anything else. If I say <laughs> learn physics instead of calculus or mom making that up she doesn't care what i say about that she'll follow by example what i do and the more time quality time i'm able to spend with her the better example i can give so that's that's really parenting is difficult it's difficult i I know i mean i'm not a parent yet and i only know what i would do different by having the understanding of look i know my mother when she had my brother and i did whatever she could for her boys and we slept in vans you know we didn't have money slept in different churches and people from congregations inviting us in to you know their places and we slept in basements is that because your was your father not helping as no it wasn't i mean he had to pay child support but but again like 
I mean, we're from North Dakota. We didn't have that much money. He moved to LA and pursued being an accountant. And my mother got full custody. We would visit my father. And I love my father. Sweetest man. Never raised his voice once. So I know that they. I didn't have arguments that I was listening to um, because I've never heard my dad yell once. And I love that about him. Um, and I thought he was the sweetest man. He is. Um, but with the parenting, seeing what time, because then my mother remarried, had two older stepbrothers, and then my mm. mother had twins with my stepfather. Oh my gosh. So I'm smack dab in the middle. And I see, and I, I remember having this conversation with my mother. I think I was going through some hard times in maybe junior high. What were they? Uh, I think it was middle child syndrome. Because the older brothers got a lot of attention from my stepfather. And then my, my blood brother, Brandon, who's three years older, he was more of a rebel because he didn't like the divorce and he just wanted to live with my dad. And then the twins got all the attention because they're the new babies. And I found myself not wanting to rebel because I saw, I learned from my older brothers what, like, that gets you nowhere. Like, not doing well in school yelling at your parents like it just was chaotic so i i I'd shoot, shut myself in my room play with my legos draw but there was a lot of loneliness that came with that and i remember my mom you know scratching my back i think i was just crying because I, I was i didn't feel like i had anyone in my life who really cared how i felt and she's like i'm, I'm sorry i'm doing the best i can she's my wonder woman and and she's like, and I'm like, I know, but you aren't a dad. You aren't a father. Like, I never felt like I had a father. Every boy needs a your, father. Your stepfather wasn't playing that role? Um, He was a provider. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't, uh, I never called him dad. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, he was the dad of the household who I saw every day. I saw my real father a um, couple times a year. But even then, like, we never played catch. And I, I love sports. I love building things. Like, I want that. And so I know when I become a father and I have a son, I'm going to play catch with him. You know, I'm going to go to his football games. I'm going to build a hot rod with him. I'm going to do stuff that boys need to do and mothers can't do authentically. You know, that's not their role. They're there for the nurturing. And cool, I can grab with my mom, but... She didn't have the time nor the the means to encourage my manhood. Well, it also sounds like, uh, well, so it sounds like you were first struggling, like moving from into vans, basements, and so on, and then stepfather came in, and that created a different type of chaos. Like his children were older, probably were quite, had more demanding needs. Plus, it was the the father's children, and then the children that they had together. It all, it's just not just middle child syndrome. It's you kind of were the least important in the hierarchy yeah. of, of all the different sets of children. Yeah. Then your father, I don't know if, did he have children in LA yeah. with new new wife? So then you're just kind of visiting and not like the child to be taken care of. Yeah. So you kind of had, you're really at the bottom of the totem pole among all your siblings and step-siblings and blood siblings and everything. And that's why I had to parent myself. I had to mature. I had to, again, like I I had to take care of myself because there was no one 
to really like take care of my needs. They were there. Like my mom was there if I needed help with homework or food. Um, but I parented myself as well as I could by learning from other people and what didn't work, what did work. And I think I took that into, and that's something actually to this day that I'm breaking down as, look, I needed that. That was a defense mechanism growing up. But as I'm older, it's not my job. I'm not a parent in relationships. I'm not a parent to siblings. I need to understand my role in this current 32 years of age with my fiance of being the the best fiance and enjoying that and not trying to parent her and tell her what to do. Well, well, you know, one thing from what you were saying is you were kind of parenting yourself and the way you do that because you were a child is you were probably observing all the people around you very closely probably much more closely than the average kid does. The average kid gets their cues from their friends and their parents and their teachers. And you were probably getting cues a lot more astutely from a lot of people. And I wonder if that carries in a weird way into the acting. Mm -hmm. Because it strikes me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can't act an adjective. So in other words... I can't act like I'm shy. I have to be shy in relation to someone else, my observations of somebody else. I'm shy around this person. And so, uh, uh, and then you, in order to do that, you have to observe them and see what it is it that's internally making you feel shy or angry or whatever. Uh, does that sound relatable? I don't know. I'm yeah, not that's an actor. A great, that's so, a great way how you put it. And we call BS on on people. And I've done a few movies where the director didn't really know how to convey, like you said, being shy in relation to the, the other person that you're acting with or in your environments. They'll just give you adjectives. Be excited in this scene, you know? Yeah, and you well, can't why? just be excited, right? Yeah, well, it's going to be BS. It's going right. to be fake. And people could tell. Pe- oh, yeah, people can tell. And some people, that's all they can do because they don't have an understanding of the character or the depths or the backstory of what they're trying to portray. I mean, there's every shade of happiness with an underline of, there's happiness with an underline of sadness. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of these underlines, but to be true and to invoke emotion or empathy from an audience, someone watching your craft, you need to draw them in with a reality and authenticity. And so, yeah, you can't, you can't just live an adjective. Right, because and also we we live in a world with with real people. Like you're yeah. you're always interacting off of other people, and that's reality. So so acting has to as closely as possible reflect that reality. It has to be the truth told with imagination. So uh, so how did it start? Like you're you're in North Dakota in the middle of what I will call nowhere, and yeah. suddenly by the age of nineteen. You're in your first TV show, or maybe it was even earlier. It looked like that from the timeline. Yeah, that. yeah, it was. It was, yeah, you know, 19 is when I kind of, I had a full ride to Chapman for chemical engineering and football. And it was the first time I, I, so going back, North Dakota, my mom took us to Colorado and then Arizona, remarried in Arizona. Nice state, Scottsdale, nice, easy, Pleasantville to grow up. Mm-hmm. Went through the school systems, you know, elementary school, um, junior high, high school. And I learned a lot um, from my older brothers 
and and I I tried to emulate my my blood brother Brandon. Whatever his goals were, I wanted to be like him. What were his goals? He wanted to go to Pepperdine. He wanted to be an accountant like my father. He wanted to go to school in California, Pepperdine, and kind of, you know, he really looked up to my dad. And so he wanted to be like my dad. So I wanted to be like my dad. And you realize as you're taking those steps, I know I saw when he was doing his college applications that from Arizona, he wasn't going to get enough scholarships to be able to go to Pepperdine. And my dad's always been there to help financially, but again, out of state tuitions, expensive, especially with private school. So with the three and a half year difference, I was a freshman when he was a senior. I saw, and he, he could have done more. He even tells me this. He's like, you know what? I wish I didn't party as much or I wish I took the testing more serious or I, I wish I did more. And I learned and I was like, okay. So if I want that, he's kind of like my guinea pig in life. Um, I thank him for that. Uh, I wonder, uh, does, is he okay with that <laughs> description? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously he's, he, um, I, I'm sure everyone wishes they had someone who could do everything for first just to learn how yeah. to do it better. And so with college, I mean, I was president of Latin club, Spanish club, president of racquetball club, did marching band, played the trombone, first chair, played football, was receiver and safety, um, treasurer of National Honor Society. Uh, just craziest schedule. Took honors class. I took seven credits plus college credits in high school while my senior friends in my senior year had taken three courses because that's all they had to do. Yeah. So my resume was super full. I got scholarships to a lot of California schools. And my father lived there, so I always wanted to be close to see him more. And I chose Chapman because it was Orange County. Seemed cool. Um, I don't think I got into Pepperdine or or I got in, but not enough scholarships to pay the way and we didn't have much money. And Chapman had a full ride. So I went there and I remember all the other brothers, my mom had a hard time with them because they rebelled in whatever way. And my brothers to this day still call me the golden child because my mom, they thought my Are mom liked me most. Uh, they weren't until we, they would say, and I had to have a sit down, a family meeting with them probably five years ago. And they, I, I'm very blessed to to have had the life that I've had and to be six foot one and to be a bigger guy. I'm the tallest out of my family, but people don't realize how much work things take, especially in the acting world, how hard it is. Yeah, it looks beautiful from the outside. You get to travel the world, you get to, play you get you know play these characters you get to party with all these celebrities it is the hardest job i've ever had because only one person gets the job and you can't control what auditions you you're seen for what jobs you're going to book you can be as prepared as possible but still that's not a guarantee of getting yourself in the doorway there and so i had to sit sit them down because they thought my life was easy and that i've just been have had the golden touch and I, we, I broke down in front of them. I'm like, look, you don't understand how hard it is to go travel somewhere in a new city in Middle East for four months by yourself, to be away from family, be away from you guys, to work 16-hour days, to get barely any sleep. Yeah, I love my job. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't have that passion. But it's tough to be away from you guys. And what I need is, because a lot of people, and they even said this, they wouldn't reach out to me 
while I was away because they're like, we don't want to bother you. And I'm like, let that be my decision. Reach out to me because it gets lonely over there. I want to hear from you guys and allow me to, and I'm I'm giving you guys permission. I want to hear from you. And let me be able to be like, hey man, and fill you in. But if, and I think that's a bit of my middle child syndrome. I didn't get much attention. So I thrive and I, I desire people to reach out to me. I mean, do you think that drove also your interest in acting? Because then you have this situation where you're on a stage, the lights are on you, yeah. and everybody is in some way emotionally reaching out to you from the audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it started, and my mother always told me, because I had a lot of alone time, so either you can recluse yourself, get inside your head, or you can extrovert it. And I would just use my imagination all the time. My mom always remembers and chuckles. Like I would put different plays on or I'd be a one-man show and use my imagination. And so she saw, because I was going to school for chemical engineering. I loved chemistry, had a great teacher, loved science and math. And it broke her heart when I got a full ride to Chapman. And I'd done modeling when I was 14. So I had a glimpse of being in front of the camera. Really, even though you're so ugly, you, you got... Um, well, I didn't even know that. So funny story, I was in Arizona and playing basketball for high school. And one of our buddies came out in a Dillard's ad. And it, black and white newspaper, leg up on the chair, like, <laughs> like cheesy. And we made fun of him. We're 14, we're like, model, male model. And he had the last laugh because he said, well, I made 500 bucks for that. And at a, as a 14-year-old who gets paid $5 every lawn he mows, my business mind, thank you, dad, clicked in. And I was like, dang, like, how do you do that? Like, I want to do that. 500 bucks? Like, that's, I can't even work. You can't work till you're 16 in Arizona. So he, he told me, hey, I'm with Ford Models. Send your stuff into Ford. And at this time, I had no idea what modeling was. I thought it was Ford trucks. Like I was a Ford truck guy. And that was my first vehicle, a Ford Ranger. So I'm like, you send it into a Ford truck, I guess. I mean, vehicles, they have a bunch of divisions. So I was really ignorant. And I sent it in. They gave me the address. And this guy called me the next day. I, I scanned in two pictures, crappy pictures, crappy quality. And Robert Black over in Arizona called me in and said, hey, is this Kellen? You know, we'd love to have you come in and talk to you about modeling. I'm like, awesome, cool. So I went in there and they signed me that day and my life changed. Like they sent me all over the world, made tons of great money, you know, from the so age like of age 14. 15. 15 and it just progressively, you know, shot for Abercrombie at the time. Um, a lot of great things. Like I was able to buy my own car before I was 16. Mm. And coming from no money, like that was huge. I was able to bless my family with more than $20 Christmas presents because mm. I love giving. And that parlayed once I went into California for college, the industry in LA turned into commercials for me, like the Hillary Duff uh, fragrance, Estee Lauder with love campaign that I was like, they chose me to do that. You know, I auditioned. And how, then, how many auditions did you have to do before you got that first commercial? I, and, I don't know that number. I've just, I feel because my ignorance with it and my, my thrill of it, because it was never my dream to be an actor, but I respect it fully. 
that I've never had that desperation that most people who don't make it, that's their lifeline. And you see the ones who don't make it, it just, their hope declines. But for me, every opportunity was just fun. And that's where like that childlike heart, I'm so glad that I was able to preserve because casting directors would say, Kellen, there's just something about you. We want to work with you. You just, you have so much fun doing this. I mean, obviously you have a good look for a lot of these types of brands. And when do you think it kicked in or, you know, did it kick in? Did you have to say to yourself, oh, I need to start figuring out the, the, the micro skills that really make a great actor. Yeah. Like what, yeah. Are, what are some of those micro skills that you felt you had to learn? And, and by micro skills, I mean like, I don't really know what I mean because I, I, I'm not an actor, but there must be, it's, it's such a difficult skill to act. I know many people who, who, who are in the industry. It's such a difficult skill to do it properly. What would you say are the micro skills you needed to learn? Well, I mean, I've had, I'm always learning. I wish I went to Juilliard. I wish I had a proper education in it. When I chose acting because I was going to school and I could only give 30% of my energies like driving all the way to LA for an audition, fighting traffic. My school was hindering and I really had to listen to my heart. And I told my mom like, hey, I'm feeling called to Hollywood. And her and I didn't speak for maybe a good year or barely. Like she wow, was, she really, was that upset she about was it? That upset. She said I threw my life away. And for me, because her, her point of view was finish school you'll get you'll get a good safe job $60,000. I'm not driven by money. For me, it's like okay, I could finish school at 22. Well, acting, you got to start young. I can't be a 22-year-old playing high school. Like you got to be 18 to play 14, 15. Um and I realized I was like I can always go back to school. Yeah, I won't have a full ride, but I'd rather follow my heart. I'd rather fail at something that I love to do than succeed at something that I really have no interest in or so, so no. you were following this there's a little bit there's an internal compass you were choosing yes. between you know you obviously were excited enough about chemical engineering to, to go down that route in the first place but acting is very exciting and obviously in in la very glamorous so there might have been a little bit of that but there was there do you think there was more to the internal compass like do you think there was something about the the artistry of of acting that was starting to call you? Yeah, well, I, th- I think God just put that desire in my heart, man. Like, I really got to say I followed my heart and he is my heart. And he opened up so many doors that I had no, cho- like, I, I had no, there's no way it was me doing it. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. In the beginning, what was... I mean, so many people go through such a hard time. And again, um, I, I, you know, I think it's fair to say your, your particular look probably fit a lot of sure. uh, descriptions yeah. of, of roles. But, um, but at some point, probably a lot of people in LA had a good look. And at what point did it kick in? Either this is very, very hard or I'm going to need to start learning some of these skills that I don't have. Um, it, or was it easy that, the whole time? It, it, well, it, it, to the level of what I knew acting was, it was easy. Like just go in there, say the lines, have fun, right? Like a lot of people ruin it in the audition process because they feel like cast directors don't like them. They take themselves out. They, they're mm. very, really insecure. They're, they're too desperate. And for me, I'm like, this is a fun, if they want me, cool. I'm going to be the best person for the job. I recognize that I look like a hundred different people. 
But if they want me, if I can just be myself. And when I walked into the rooms, I was so free and light that people were like, okay, he like, we want him for some reason. He stands out. After I got Twilight, it's not that I, I, my education in acting from the different acting teachers that I had, I had to dissect it because it was wrong teachings. I got taught and it helped me a little bit, but there's a lot of bad attributes that I took into acting that wasn't working anymore. Once you get like to what? a certain level. Um, and I'm always well, curious. It, it, well, no, I, even, I, I even one, like I wish I knew back in the day to memorize all your lines. No one told me, memorize your lines. So I would walk in there with a piece of paper reading my lines. And it's so distracting. If you and I had a conversation and I'm just reading what I'm telling you, like this, like, and especially on camera, like you want to see the face. So after I, I don't know what, I, I think I observed that in this one big audition, no one had sides on them. I realized, oh, they're really memorizing it. And then also to be real, I have a mathematic analytical side of my brain that I use a lot. So for me, when I was memorizing lines, instead of being true to the scene, what is happening in this scene? What is your relationship with the characters? I was more memorizing lines numerically. So if I had a 10 page script, that was 40 lines I had to say, I would lock them in my head. It's a hard way to memorize. It's a stupid way to memorize for me because you lack the emotion. You're just saying the words. I have the words up right. here, but I wasn't practicing on what I was saying. I was pra or like how it was coming off. I was just practicing memorizing the lines and no and you can tell a bad actor who's just saying the lines versus feeling it so were you were you getting rejected from yeah. those auditions yeah well and it was frustrating for me because i was doing it a certain way that I, I i i learned from other people or teachers and it was the wrong way and i felt it wrong because when i was doing it i wasn't feeling anything and that's not true art and when I had, like after Twilight, not that I was typecast, but it put me into a different, I was auditioning with Chris Hemsworth and, and Chris um, Pine and, and Pratt and, and Chris Evans, all, all the Chris's. The Chris's. <laughs> My middle name's Christopher. Let's just, let's just go by Chris now. Chris Lutz, there you go. Um, and I was in this, this new pool of actors, like named actors. And it just wasn't going the way that I wanted it to go. And I really had to step back and be like, what isn't working? And so that's interesting because all those people you, you named just then, um, again, at some point you reach your, your group where, okay, I ha you have a certain look. They also have that certain look. So now you can't just get by on your looks. the look. Yeah. You have to be able to act. Yeah. And not that you weren't acting before. I'm sure you were. And you were in a lot of... Um, roles you had bit roles in a lot of shows um uh six feet under heroes i i, I know those two the comeback are, are yeah my favorite shows um yeah the comeback uh but um what what now what did you do to up up the acting game well that's where you get so i you can't continually do the same thing i.e working with the same acting coaches or classes and expect different results you mm -hmm. just can't so as a period i was like okay well the best way to get different results is changing it all up and with that is i found new people who you know i look at some of the actors that i look up to and i find out who they train with mm -hmm. or who they studied with 
And then I got acting coaching. Coaching's important. A lot of actors, they hide that they get coached. Or, I mean, back in the old day, they had acting coaches on set for the actors for the movies because they're that important. Nowadays, people aren't proud of it or they act like they don't need it. It's my best resource, having someone. What were the bad coaches telling you? Uh, I mean, it, you know, it. Uh, like, what would you avoid now as an actor? Well, it, 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 there's a difference from memorizing the lines and living them. And now with different roles, I create the character inside me and I create backstory and I create who they were as kids. So even if they weren't, were. even if this is not something in the script, you're trying to think of a thousand questions you can answer. Yeah. And, and then it's authentic. Mm. You, you can make false memories in your mind. You can get yourself to emotional levels instead of having someone tell you the adjective of be sad. You know, and that's the difference with working with really great directors. They can paint, they can help you paint this memory and that like of the scene and the backstory of what happened when you, when you came in that door, what happened on your drive from work? Did you hit someone? You're coming now and your wife just caught you. She caught you cheating. She knows that you're cheating. So you're coming in, you see that face on her. She doesn't have to say anything. Now you know what that means. Right, and again, so it's sort of like you can't, someone can't tell you act guilty here. You have to act guilty to her. Like, because yeah. that's the feel, you're, yeah. you're reacting to her uh, rather than just saying, oh, I'm guilty now. Yeah, because it's like, well, why? Like, what? why am I feeling guilty? Well, if you don't have that backstory, if you don't have that character that you've created, um, you know, I just played this other role in the movie that just came out recently on October 6th, uh, The Osiris Child, and working with Shayna Bess, our director, down in Australia for two months, I lived and breathed my character, Cy Lombrock, for two months. And Would you stay in character the whole time? Stay in character the whole time. It was the first time that I've really need, had a reason to do that, because a lot of action movies or a lot of roles, you don't need that sort of depth that I've done. I'm, I'm really itching to keep on growing that and doing more dramatic roles but for that one he's a character of hopelessness you see at the end of the movie because the movie's chopped up chapters out of sync kind of like memento where you don't realize why the character is the way that he is until the very last chapter and my character he uh his wife and his daughter um were killed by a drunk driver and he ends up in the hospital breaking down and he goes to the drunk driver and he just chokes him out, beats him up, and kills him. And that's why that's where it starts the whole story. He's in this prison. Mm. And you don't realize if he's a good or bad guy until the very end. You're like, oh, shoot, that's why he does this. And for me, I'm a man of hope. Like, I have so much hope and faith. And that's just my own faith. So to play someone, and I have many friends who are atheists in life. And even them, and they're actors. And when they have no hope, even in themselves and something outside themselves, I step back and I'm like, man, that has got to be the hardest thing to pull yourself out of. Because where, where do you put your hope? The feeling of hopelessness eats and eats and eats inside of you. And if you don't have a way or something outside of yourself to help pull, you out, pull yourself out of that, where do you go? And well, well so, so going, I, I want to I keep exploring this character for a second. Yeah. But going on a tangent to that do you think there is a secular way to pull yourself out of that hopelessness like what do you personally believe 
as in like is there a way without a faith in in god or jesus or you know to do you feel there's a way to pull yourself out of hopelessness if you were to feel that way if that situation were to happen to you in real life and you didn't have faith do you feel there's a secular way to to pull yourself out of hopelessness honestly no i i mean i couldn't even think of something because it just wouldn't be true i feel like i I don't think anything, if you don't have faith in even any sort of belief system, what else is there that is above yourself? You know, if- I've been thinking about this a lot lately because obviously we live in a, a, a world where skepticism is usually correctly rewarded. And, but then if you look at like history, you look at countries that specifically outlawed faith. Like let's say, Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany or communist China, uh, they really didn't work out too well as as civilizations, as societies. And uh, so I've just been I've just been wondering about this on a personal level. Yeah, well, and what was America founded on? I mean, it was yeah. founded on on independence from religion, but at the same time, so under God, invisible. Yeah, uh, yeah all the initial settlers were obviously had their belief systems that were, let's say, slightly different from their the European countries they were coming from, but they still had strong belief systems. And I Even think, stronger, because that's why they moved across an ocean to get here. They had faith. They had faith in freedom. And with people, like, if they didn't have that faith, they were hopeless, and they didn't believe that they could do it, would they have done it? Highly doubtful. Because so, why? What's the reason to do it then? Right, So, so playing this character where you had to basically immerse yourself in that hopelessness were you able to have an ounce of hope that 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 was in there driving your actions forward, or did you really have to eliminate that inside of yourself? I had to eliminate that in, inside myself, and that was such an anxious feeling for me because it's like something that you know is so true, and yet you have to create these backstories and these emotions and like go through that that um what's the word I'm looking for, um, of losing your, your wife and daughter. Um, Without any hope that there's a well, future. You'll never, yeah, if you, if you don't believe you'll ever see them again. And, and then, you're, then that's why my character killed them because it's like, what's the point of living then? I just had the two things that mattered most to me. And you can see that from, time, from the suicide rates. A lot of people, you know, they, they feel like they messed up or even in 2007 and eight when they lost everything and the, the market crashes, like, they didn't have any hope. They feel like they messed up and the best way is to just eliminate themselves and that's just that voice in your head because if you don't have belief or, or, or the positive voice in your head uh, speaking truth and, and life to you, well, that just leaves room for the opposite to come in. So for my character, that was very tough for me and I found myself in a very negative headspace which helped me understand a lot of other people in my life. But I did have, there's hope in the movie when I meet Kane's daughter because she resembles the daughter that I lost. And to save her, it gave me purpose when that was introduced into the story. But I also, when the movie was done, and even talking to Daniel McPherson, who played my counterpart, Kane, in the movie, you know, you need a lifeline outside of the movie. You cannot fully go 100%. Like, you need to be able to have an anchor somewhere and that's why I have such a great support system and my family's so great to help me get out of that hopelessness as soon as possible and get back into my, my true 
you know, I, I don't know if you've read this book. There's a book by this guy, Victor Frankl, called Man's Search for Meaning, which um, he's he's a survivor of the Holocaust and, and Auschwitz. And wow. he, and there was, everybody, all the prisoners were always talking about suicide. And he would, his theory that he realized was if he just had hope that he would see his wife again, they had all given up hope on God. Because at that point, if there was a sure. just God, their yeah. feeling was they wouldn't be there. So they they had given that that hope, but he would find ways to find meaning. So he would say, if I if I could see my wife again ever, which he never did, by the way, but if I could see my wife again ever, um, that gives me enough meaning to to get through this. Or if I could, if this idea works about meaning, if I could write about this and share this with others, which he did do eventually, that gives my life meaning to to survive mm-hmm. this. And he would often try to whisper to his, because you couldn't really talk about this with his fellow prisoners. Uh, he would whisper to them to try to give help them find their meaning in life. And that was crucial to survival. There had to be some, like you say, a lifeline outside of the hopelessness to, to hold on to. And even if you don't have faith in, you know, God or whatever it is, just like you said, having a day-to-day hope, like hope that I'll get out of bed, hope that I'll be able to find my wife, see my wife again, write a book that will give my life meaning. And you think about, people you know that what's that one movie where they're like stuck in like a little raft in the middle of the ocean for 40 days and like the difference of your mind like you got to keep your mind if as soon as you lose your mind and you start worrying and doubting your life's gonna go you're gonna give up because you have no reason but if so, you so how did this character then um at least in the beginning when he's when he's in jail after killing you know his uh, the the killer how did he have any kind of lifeline at all? Why didn't he just kill himself? Well, his lifeline was once he went to the prison, he realized how bad the prison was. So he's a fighter of injustice. I see. So he had he had some vein of justice must be served that kind of yeah. gave him a little, tiny bit of purpose. Well, he was there. He made friends. He didn't care about his life, but what there what the warden was doing in this prison was unacceptable, and he was gonna create this riot to expose it, even if. If his life was taking it, fine. But if he could save one of those guys, they deserve it. So, so, so clearly, then, you know, really getting into this, you know, building this backstory, getting into the mind of the character, uh, not only has helped your acting, but of co- of course has helped you in building other life skills, like you know, understanding this meaning of 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 what your faith is, of what a lifeline is. Um, you also said something in there uh, how the movie was shot. You know, back and forth over time, um, like Memento. Now you were probably—I don't know when Memento came out, but you were probably seven or eight years old. You've pro- you've certainly done some study of acting through movies that have gone on, you know, before. You're not just sort of running around from audition to audition. Like, have you spent a lot of time really looking at the history of cinematography mm, or cinema? Yeah, well, yeah. Now, now that that now that I am an actor, I didn't grow up watching movies or even working with Expendables cast. I mean, as an action player, I mean, th- those guys were my biggest heroes, but I didn't know them as the real names. I knew them as Rocky and Rambo and and He-Man and Blade, their characters, because they're, they're these superheroes to me, you know, these underdogs. Uh, and Are you going to be He-Man? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we don't know. Yeah, hopefully, right. hopefully, uh, I'd love to put the size back on. And, you know, I love He-Man, Masters of the Universe. It's been a childhood I still have all the toys, all the books. Um, 
comics. So we'll see. I think they're getting that going. The script, they're going through different writers. Um, but hopefully Sony makes that in 2019. I think it's slated. So I'd love to, you know, I know my hat's in the ring for that one. But I'd love to do it. I'd love to see that one come about. So, of course, all those movies, they're, they're one category of movies. Although uh, Rocky, I would say, I would, I would set aside as, as being very special. But mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of like, when did you watch Memento? When did you, when did you start looking into all of these like really great actors and scripts and so on from the past? Well, I think I think when I was going through the, the Twilight era of something, I'm I'm being called into a next level. So everything needs to increase. I need to start studying and emulating or learning and deciphering some of my favorite actors like Matt Damon. He can play the comedy, the action, the drama, and just seeing what, what they're doing. And you watch a lot of movies and and also I read a lot. So you read a lot of autobiographies and you read like a lot wh- of stories. Which ones did you read? Um, I love Einstein. I love Mishukaku, uh, Elon Musk, um, Branson's one. So you just learn a lot about their vision, their hope, and their drive. So even people who you weren't talking to directly, like your coaches, you were able to find virtual mentors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so with the Twilight series, like you said, you were getting to another level in the sense that this was an epic. You were in five movies playing this character mm-hmm. and you kind of had to take a role that was, you know, this supernatural role uh, in this, you know, series, this made up fantasy world. And that also must have had a challenge in terms of like, okay, well, what 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 are the rules of a fantasy world? That's what I love, sci-fi. And working with Shane and Bess, he had a, an amazing vision. We'd always have music playing. I love music. It really tends to everyone's heart. You can make or break a movie with having great music and a great soundtrack. And we had our composer, Brian, on set, always setting the mood. And I'm great to work with. And and Shane even told the crew, like, look, this is going to be an emotional week. So don't mind the actors if they're being dicks, you know, or not talking to you normally. And they all understood that. And he had worked with this crew from Infinity and Gabriel, his other movies. So they were all accustomed to this this way of filmmaking. And it was just beautiful. My, my most favorite experience making a film. And with that, with sci-fi, you have this freedom to create whatever world, whatever rules you want. There's nothing telling you what you can and cannot do because it's sci-fi. Right, but at yeah. the same time, once the rules are set, sure. they gotta be fixed. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of a covenant of science fiction that this is this is the new, the new yeah. rule. Yeah. And so once you were in there, you kind of had to to stick to it. Yeah, which was fine because you got to create those rules organically with your cast and your crew, mm. your director. And when when it must have been an experience like the five movies, you really build like a kind of a new family in some sense among those actors. Yeah, that one Twilight was an interesting one because it was a bit it was a commercial movie, and we're playing these vampires that are trying to act human yet don't breathe, don't need to eat. So, you know, it's kind of stale, these undead or these these, these dead characters. Um, so trying to portray human qualities is interesting. It was really interesting. How did, how did, you, how did you coach yourself or have, have a coach coach you into doing that? Uh, that, that one was more, I mean, I wish there was more to my character. Honestly, I try to fill up, fill in as many 
dry spots as possible because my character, yeah, he's important to the movies and he's a fan favorite. I love Emmett, but he just, he didn't really have to do much. And so I'm there on set trying to bring some complexity to the character, but it just wasn't, sometimes you're in those cases where it's just not called for or there's no no need for it because really all you have to do is stand there and stand there. Right, know? because I guess the characters took on a life of their own in the heads of the fans. The fans wanted the characters more than the story did maybe. Yeah, and so that's what we were. We were these characters for the fans more so than the actual depth of the movie called for. For my character, anyways. I mean, Edward and Bella and Jacob, they had many layers of complexity. But within the other family members, there wasn't... There, it, it wasn't Shakespeare, you know. It wasn't. It was pretty commercial, and and the rules were pretty much there. And the directors were creating these beautiful set pieces. I remember for Breaking Dawn, one and two, we had this epic fight scene. We had two weeks of shooting the same scene because it was more about the vastness of this fight. And we're in the studio, fake snow you know, doing this fight and 90% of the fight is just talking, you know, the the three people, four people up in the front, like in the center as they meet. It's like a football team and the captains meet in the in the front. And for two weeks, pretty much I just stood in that spot and there wasn't anything you could really do. You know, and it sounds like now, now you're, you're done with that series. You're starting to break into these dramatic roles. Sounds mm-hmm. like that's a lot more pleasurable to you yeah kind of a lot more challenging because you're able to to take these things that you wanted to learn and start applying them i want to be respectful of your time so i want to ask you something that i wanted to to get to um you're obviously involved in a lot of charities yeah you've been involved for a while in charities against sex trafficking you just started i don't know if it was just started but i know you've been working on a campaign with jeffrey bean against uh you know supporting cancer research and so on and did you was that how did you get, well, I want to only answer this quickly because I think it's a, it's a good thing. It's an important thing. Um, did you, did you, you know, how did you get involved in these different charities? Well, my mother, just going through the different hardships we had growing up, always, we always had people giving to us and helping us out in times of need. And I think that's the, the strongest thing about being human, you know, is to have empathy and to give. And so she really instilled you know, paint it forward qualities and volunteering um, and just helping out because when you're giving to someone, you end up receiving. And when you're in, I remember like when I'm in slumps, my mom's like, go volunteer for the Boys and Girls Club. Like go, just go give because you naturally, when you're giving and you're helping someone else in need, you're going to feel better about it. And it's, it's such a great resource and I just love doing it. So my mother always had us volunteering at different, uh, retirement centers or feeding the homeless growing up. Even Christmas, we'd go down and and feed the homeless as a family. And doing that, she just always instilled those qualities. So when I, when things like children and animals always, they, they just, you know, get my heart beating. And when my good friend Kim Biddle created the Saving Innocence, which dealt with children being trafficked for sex out in LA, that's where I'm living now. So and, and so, you know, it's it's funny. I, I want to ask you about this. I, I, on a day to day basis, you hear the word sex trafficking, but you never see it. Like 
you don't see kids being dragged off the street or anything and like, oh no, this kid's going to be sex trafficked. Like how big is well, this? And I'm being totally naive. I'm well, asking the no, most and, and naive most question. Most people are. I was as well until I got educated. And when you're educated and you see it firsthand what it looks like, then you have an understanding and you can have discernment with it because even driving, working with the LA police department and doing ride-alongs and seeing what a normal, you'd, you'd pass them in traffic, you know, a 12-year-old girl wearing something. Okay, she's she lives in Hollywood, so she's wearing something skimpy. You know, maybe that's our generation. On the corner, just talking on her phone. You wouldn't think anything of it. But when you, they educate you and you're spotting in the in the cop car, the undercover one, and you, and they point out, they're like, see that the guy in that, you know, that that El Camino, you know, two streets down? Yeah, that's that's her pimp. Right now she's she's hooking right now. And you you don't realize why can't the cops just go in, take her off the street, put her in foster care? Well, foster care, that that's another system. we we created a hope house for them. Mm-hmm. And so you need to build these cases. Cause a lot of the people, they move to hell, uh, Hollywood to follow a dream. And when that dream doesn't happen, and some of these guys meet them outside of a Starbucks, be like, hey, yo, you want to be in uh, my rap video? Everyone's gonna be like, Yeah. So they take them down to Orange County or away. They take their phone. They take any sort of means that they have. And they, they kind of brainwash them. And, and they violate them to the point where they have no hope. And now these people who are trafficking them or using them, they, you know, as, as a 12-year-old, if, you, if you're taken, if I was taken somewhere to a city I had no idea and I had no idea where to go or if I wasn't talking to my parents or my parents weren't around for whatever reason, I wouldn't know what to do. So I'd, I'd feel lost. And so what, what these cops are doing, they're building these cases and they're, you, know, you can't just, you gotta build the case to make sure that these guys are put away and that you can rescue these girls and also rehabilitate them so they don't go back to the thing that mm. that's all that they know. Does that happen a lot? Like yeah, they, yeah. You take the girl off the street, but then she ends up going back? Yeah, because she's just, she, a lot of times with women, they don't feel worthy. They don't feel worthy of help. And so the shame that they carry, it's safer to them mm. to do what they're used to doing because they carry so much shame and guilt for what they've been through that they don't feel like they deserve a second chance. And that's the sad thing that we have to give them hope. And that's that's why even working with uh, Jeffrey Bean Foundation, I hosted the, the first gala for Saving Innocence in LA and Tom and Mara bought a table Tom started uh, the Jeffrey Bean Foundation, with, which donates 100% of the net proceeds to cancer research, new cancer research over at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And we were talking and he was really looking for a way because they don't spend any money on advertisement. They were looking for someone who had a voice and a platform to be an ambassador. I'm like, sign me up. So I educated myself with them. They do amazing things. Uh, so proud to be a part of it. And it's just spreading the awareness and giving people hope. I lost my grandma and my uncle to cancer these last couple of years. And without hope, I believed in the power of the mind and the spoken word. If you speak life to yourself, you're going to get better, you know, or the odds are you, you can get better. But if you're speaking death and that you can't, and that you have this disease and you can't come and you just worry, like you're get, like, where's your hope at? And it's, it's a sad thing. A lot of people don't share that they have cancer because they're afraid of it. They're shame, shameful of it. But people spoke more about it and found help. Like now I know about Memorial Sloan Kettering. 
Now, if I ever got it, and, and with men, it's one out of two men will get cancer. One out of three women will. So those odds, especially I have six brothers, that's half of us. Mm. Now that I know a facility that cares and that they pour all their money into new cancer research, because we can't cure cancer doing the same thing over and over again. We need new money to create new research for the pioneering of, of conquering this insidious disease. Like you really do need that. So that hope, I mean, I next person I know, if, if they have some weird cancer thing, I'm going to send them over here, you know, and have them talk to these people who, who are making a difference. So I, I find all of this kind of weaves in with, with your faith. Mm. And so you, you posted on um, Instagram at one point, this is in December, 2016, uh, uh, you know, you, um, you, you said over a year ago in a season of being single, I wrote a letter to God with all the qualities oh, I yeah. truly wanted in my future life. And it reminds me of just that line there reminds me of the idea, you know, the psychological study. If once you buy a Honda, you start seeing all the Hondas on the road. Yeah. yeah. So once you actually write down the qualities, maybe it is true. It's not necessarily law of attraction, which I'm not quite sure I believe in, but it's this idea that, okay, now that you've written the qualities down, now you'll start seeing the qualities in the people around you, and that helps you to find what you want. Sure. And, you know, later, and, and you, you talk about, you know, the, the woman you, you met who became your, your fiancé, and then later, um, and you, you, you say, this, this is an Instagram post, you say, thank you, God, uh, and you quote Jeremiah uh, 29, 11, mm-hmm. for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Amen. So it's kind of a very upbeat, uh, there's, there's a lot of faith that sort of focuses on, you know, let's say sinning and retribution. I don't want to do that. But there are, there are lots of parts of the Bible which do hold on to that positive lifeline and that and a feeling of abundance rather than a feeling of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and for me, I know I mess up. You know, I know I sin. And I think that the thing that gets me through is that I know, you know, Jesus paid for it with his life and that I'm forever forgiven. And, you know, I'm going to go to heaven one day and I, I can, I want to be the best person that I can, but I do fail. You know, I am human. Um, with that, when I act out of my own free will, you know, we have free will here. When I, in moments in, in life seasons, when I don't keep God in the center, maybe I'm, I get too busy or maybe, you know, I'm allowing fear and doubt to come in in different arenas of my life. You know, I have a great support system. Even my fiance is like, when's the last time you like, you had Bible time? You know, the Bible is spoken word. It's, it, there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. Um, but it's, it's to bring life to your life. And I know whenever I like check back in and I don't realize that I had not checked out, but just not kept it on the forefront of my routine. Like I wake up and I, say three things I'm grateful for, three things I want to accomplish in the day. But I don't hold myself, like I don't get discouraged or on myself if I didn't do those things. It's to give your life a blueprint and hope for what you want to accomplish and the things that will make your life happy. And when I was getting tired of dating in Hollywood, I wrote a letter to God. And if you don't have a plan, you don't have a dream and you, you make a blueprint, a plan for it. Let's write down the qualities that I want in my wife, even physical, even emo- like emotional. I want her to laugh at my jokes. I want her to have brown hair, green eyes. You know, just like with sex trafficking, if you don't know what you're looking for, 
then you're going to pass it. But now that I know, like with sex trafficking, what that girl looks like and what the pimp looks like and what the situation looks like, when I see it, I'm more in tune. Like the Hondas, I want a Jeep Wrangler. So as soon as I've been looking those up, I see them everywhere. I wanted an Aussie Shepherd. I got an Aussie Shepherd. Now I see Aussie Shepherds everywhere. If you don't know really what you're looking for and you don't write it out and manifest it, law of attraction, the secret, prey on it, whatever you call it, you're kind of walking aimlessly. And what's the harm in writing out what you want? Because you're putting it out there, you're going to be more observant to when you actually see it and it comes into your life. And I was very grateful that I did that. And boom, Brittany came and I was like, I know this is her. And I have that when you know, you know moment. And yeah, I've messed up things here and there or you know, um, made mistakes that I had to apologize and ask Brittany for, for forgiveness. Nothing crazy, but again, you know, I, I kind of put a lot on my plate. And, you know, we just have such a great relationship because we have something at the center of our relationship above us. And I've she, never, so she has, she's a believer as well. And I've never dated someone. And in the Bible, you're supposed to be equally yoked, whatever belief you are, whatever. And my belief system is, what I care about most, you know, God gave me my industry. Like he's using me whatever way he wants. When twilight came around, I didn't want to do twilight. I thought it was such a weird script. I just came back from doing generation kill in Africa for seven months to reading this sparkling vampires with no fangs script. I didn't know it was a book series. I told my team, no, this isn't my cup of tea. And they wanted me to audition for Edward. And I'm like, this guy's too depressing. Like, this is just not, I don't get it. And passed on that. And thank God, you know, um, Rob got it because he's perfect for it. But then they showed me the character of Emmett and I trusted my team. But again, all of Kellen didn't want the care. I didn't understand it. And God gave it to me. And then boom, you know, it, it became what it became. And there's been numerous times where it just wasn't of my understanding. But he's going to use you if you just step out in faith and listen. Last question. How do you know when you say no to something that you're following the compass of your faith and not just your own personal compass? So let's say you turn down the role of Twilight, or like you turn down the role of Edward. How do you know your faith didn't want you to take that role because it was created? Because my spirit was unsettled. My mm -hmm. spirit was unsettling. So, so you trust, you had faith in that inner compass. Yeah, because I'm connected to it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, and I wish I connected, like I wish I, constantly stay connected even for minuscule things like you know getting a coffee or, or going like there's no my spirit you know the holy spirit and, and what i believe that lives inside me um it's never going to steer me wrong it's it's when i don't connect to that truth and i i i listen to the little voice inside my head a little whisper and so when I was reading about the Edward thing, it was a no, I didn't, my spirit didn't like it. And when Emmett came, I'd already read the script. I didn't even remember Emmett. He had like two lines in the first script. And I reread it, going through the pages, like, no, no Emmett, no, oh, here. Her name is Bella. He like this one little line, I'm like, but my spirit lit up. And as much as I, I, I had a ticket booked to go to Arizona that night to go see my family because I'd been gone for seven years, seven months, <laughs> seven years, seven months. And I wanted to see my mom, my dog, and my brothers back in Arizona. So I'd booked my ticket and Ryan, my, my manager still to this day, 13 years, love him. He's like, we just go in for Emmett, trust me. And you have to have that trust with your team as well. But also in my, my spirit, 
I felt okay doing it. And so I went, said the audition, didn't care. Oh, I was being respectful, but it was like two lines and said it, did it. I was big. I was, I think my size helped for that because I was yoked and that's what the characters called for. And there's a lot of small guys. in Way as muscular as me. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I left the audition. They called me right before I headed to the airport. They're like, hey, they want to fly you to Portland, Oregon. And they want you to audition with the with the director, Catherine Hardwick. And I'm like, oh, you know, I was so, Kellen was kind of annoyed because I just wanted to go home. But then my spirit was pulling me there. I was like, okay, okay. And I went there and auditioned. She loved it. And I went straight into baseball training uh, for the movie. And so you just, I know, and I know when I've done stuff and not checked in and just done it where I thought I was right, it was wrong. And it, it, and time and time again, like, oh, I've always felt like an angelic presence protecting me or just some sort of like spiritual protection. Maybe that's from my mom's lifetime of praying for me um, or just the calling on my life. But there's been numerous times where I've just been like, thank you, God. Like even one time when I was driving my friends back from a club and I turned, didn't see a car. And you know, I looked in my blind spot, turned and like felt something push my infinity, it was sliding in a way like we're driving this way, turning a semi truck's coming right here, push the car like this. Mm. And we were just so, I was like, that was an angel, that was something saved us. And having those feelings, oh, I, I get the chills just thinking about it. I've had the, the great, the, the blessing that I've had is I've had experiences. So people can deny whatever. I know my truth. I've seen things. I've felt things. So that's something that I will always be a believer because I've experienced it. And I think everyone can if they allow themselves to do it. But I, will, I, can, I can never deny you know, my God and the beliefs that I have because it's denying my experience. And I am so grateful for that because not everyone gets to experience that. Well... Kellen Lutz, I think everything you've said today is really admirable and, and inspirational. Uh, obviously, people could see you in every movie in the universe <laughs> at this point. You're involved in a lot of charities, and I actually I find your your the 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 faith that's the backbone of a lot of this to be really uh, inspiring because I think I think we live in a world again. I've said this before. Skepticism is often correctly rewarded because. You could. We were talking about Richard Branson before the podcast started. Oh, when when there's a problem in the world, you could be skeptical of the current solutions to create new solutions, and that's how innovation happens. But I also think skeptics in general need to be open mind. Need to be as open minded as they pretend to be, and I think that's very an, an important lesson. And there's no harm in trying to be uh, more positive in every aspect of your life and find that group. People find those lifelines, find what you believe in, and 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 have faith in it. So, thank you for coming on the on the podcast. And look, come on, come on again. I'll ask you uh, for for more advice. So I love it, man, and I love science. And and again, to to parlay on what you said, it's not easy to have faith. And and again, there's a lot of questions out there that a lot of skeptics skeptics uh, win at. You know, why does why do bad things happen to good people? You know, and and. For us, like, we'll never know. Even in the Bible, it says, like, we will never have full understanding. And as soon as you give that up, um, but that's the hard thing because as humans, like, we race to have understanding. 
you know, to fly to the moon. It's a balance. Yeah, but I always found it fascinating where there were so many scientists who, this is what they do. They, they, they prove science. But the ones who like see miracles happen and they have this faith in like, look, this shouldn't have happened. You shouldn't have cured your cancer. How did you cure your cancer? And they're like, you know what? I just prayed to God and I had people praying over me and I just believed that it was going to be gone. And and it's always fascinating the things that can't be described yet happen for good. Mm-hmm. And I I love that. I really do. Well, thanks again. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Next time on the James Altucher if Show. If I have an instinct on something, I don't get accountants to come and spend days and days analyzing for instance, when I started Virgin Atlantic, I'd never got an accounting firm in to see whether or not we'd make money or lose money. Instinctively, you know, any firm of accountant would say, you're mad, you're running a record company, there's no way you can make a success out of the airline business, especially when you hardly get any money um, to start it. And even our big rival, British Airways, said you know, that I was too old to rock and roll, too young to fly, you know, you'll be bankrupt within 12 months. And 35 years later, Virgin Atlantic is still going strong. How did you do it? How did you convince Boeing to essentially lend you a plane? (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. Probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.